0: Kia ora koutou Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Well, kia ora koutou, katoa everyone, and welcome to The Hoon on Friday the 25th of August. I'm Bernard Hickey here in Auckland with co-host Peter Bale. Peter, how are you?
1: Good, I'm in Hoon Bay, Bernard, and I was scootering along today on a rented scooter since my actual scooter got stolen today outside Auckland University, which really pissed me off actually, um, and I saw Christopher Luxon doing a stand-up, and I mm. thought, felt like, I don't know, I for some reason I felt like being rude to him, which is not like me. But I don't know, he just it was it just he the smuggometer went off the scale and I just <laughs> I just wasn't sure about it. But um I noticed during the week, Bernard, that your assertion last week, your focus group of one driving up from Wellington to Auckland that there was a hell of a lot of national banners everywhere is not only true, but it seems to have been validated by this idea that national's got a lot of money coming in.
0: Yes, it turns out if for every one dollar that is raised by Labour. National has been raising seven and a half dollars. And we got to the point last earlier this week where Labor, obviously a little bit short of funds, uh, had to call on the big gun and got Helen Clark to make a personal Good appeal Lord. to say, uh, I'm investing this amount mm. of money and I'd love it if you all invested the same amount. And that helped. But it is very clear that mm. Labor, although in government and in theory, should be in a poll position, are clearly not in either the polls or in the money-raising stakes, which is another way mm-hmm. of, you know, sometimes in America, for example, that's how they judge how successful you are, by how much money you've got. Yeah, yeah. A- and certainly that's the case here. And we're starting to get into election season. We'll talk about this later on. I 50 think.
1: days, I realised today.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, and not just here, but overseas, the first uh, Republican presidential mm. candidate uh, bun fight sans Donald Trump
1: yeah which looks absolutely hideous did you see that only two of them put their hands up when or didn't put their hands up when set said, said that they would vote for him regardless of if he, if he was convicted i mean it is we're all in
0: some kind of weird play and of course they were asked once did they believe in climate change and all of them said uh no and one of them said it was a hoax
1: yeah yeah Ooh. which is which is the leader who came up you know, Vivek, what's his name Ramaswamy, mm, came up mm. really really powerfully uh you know, he was pressing all the Trump buttons, and I just—it mm. is pretty extraordinary the lengths that you have to go to demonstrate your fealty to this person. But have you seen the mug, mugshot today?
0: I saw a reaction to it, so I saw it go up on a big screen, and a yeah. bunch of bunch of people, at, who are obviously not Trump fans, mm. who all cheered like, "Oh, finally, I've seen the guy in a mugshot!" Great.
1: Yeah, he's—I mean, he's wearing his hair looks like—I don't know whether you remember when we were kids, Bernard—that you could buy a plastic Beatles wig. Um, that made you look like one of the Beatles if you were a little child, kid, you know, a young <laughs> young boy. And he looks like he's wearing a plastic, you know, Donald Trump wig. And he's doing. Do you remember the film Zoolander with Ben Stiller? Oh, and the Blue Steel, yeah, Blue Steel. He's doing Blue Steel.
0: <laughs> orange Steel is that what? Yeah, it is well, Orange time? Steel exactly. He's doing Orange Steel.
1: It is just extraordinary. But so, so Bernard, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to do Prigogine.
0: Oh, his yeah. fall from the sky, if not his fall from grace, Grace, but um, psh, yes, yeah. uh, not even uh, being in the aisle seat saved him. Uh, staying away from windows mm. was his plan, but that even that couldn't save him. Mm. Mm.
1: So we'll talk quite a lot about that, I think, because, mm. the, you know, the cynicism that's on display today by Putin is quite, you know, it's, it is, it, it is, um, you know, award winning crocodile tears. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and, you know, you got to, be not too sad about either of them, really. But uh, it is it is a thing, and now there's a whole bunch of things that might happen. Yeah. We'll talk about that with Robert,
1: and we're going to talk about New Zealand. What, what do you want to talk about with New Zealand politics?
0: Well, uh, we're going to have Josie on at the end talking mm. about polarization and this change in tone this week. I think, particularly on Tuesday, mm. towards going negative. Going hard against the other party, not really talking about what you're going to do to make life, lives better, but just how ba- how bad the other guy is, mm. and uh, and also just uh, talking a bit more about the Kaka project, uh, a fancy name for us doing a bit more uh, solutions journalism ahead Excellent. of the election. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we
1: we should get we should get my friend from Australia back on again mm. to yeah. test how well you've done. Speaking yeah. of solutions journalism, we have the solution to climate change worrying right there. Catherine. Yeah,
0: Catherine, it's lovely to have you on. Catherine, we've been having such good chats. I keep thinking we should bottle them and put them up as videos. Absolutely, where, where <laughs> we educate each other on all sorts of things, including uh, the climate, and actually starting to ask our audience. Uh, we did something accidentally interesting this week <laughs> on Tuesday after one of our chats. In fact, during during one of our chats, why uh, accidentally? Well. Here's the story. Here, Catherine mm. and I were having a chat about you know what we should cover this week, and we got to talking about the latest climate news and how bad it looked. and And I mused, you know, uh, if, if this was the beginning of Second World War, all sorts of amazing things would happen immediately and fast. And uh, we wouldn't even think twice. Uh, At the beginning of the Second World War, you know, all sorts of things were banned. There was rationing put in. Companies were stopped from uh, building consumer devices and made to build planes and and bombs. You know, all sorts of things happened real fast because there was a a near and present danger to our existence. Oh, you need. Have you been to see Oppenheimer then? No. No, uh, it sounds like it's good. I, I listen well, that's, to the podcast. I, mean, I, think,
1: I think that's what you're talking about, and I could see you writing quite a good column about this. Mm. That mm. you, if you, if you made you know the Manhattan Project into the weather project or the exactly. climate project,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, actually, let's talk about that, Catherine. Uh, um, in our question to our audience, we asked, "What would you do if it was a real climate emergency? If it was like the beginning of the war, and you wanted to do something?" What are the sorts of things that we could do? Because you've been thinking about this for a while. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, I've got a top five list and I also specifically have one of the respondents on that question um, Mm. to to the carcass subscribers said, you know, if you're in New Zealand, the two main things you have to think about are cars and cows. So I've had Mm. to think about that one as well in terms of what should we do about cars and cows. But my top five, first one would be Stop taxing work and start taxing consumption and accumulation. Mm. Oh, and So interesting. that would be like moving it. from income tax to natural resource taxes and wealth taxes. Mm.
1: Um, so it's flat income tax, but really high GST on absolutely everything.
2: I wouldn't do it as GST. I think a natural resource tax is how much resources. So that goes to companies in terms of how much natural resources you're using in your product. Mm-hmm. And you set the tax at the same rate that it costs to recycle those inputs into Mm. what you're making to increase recycling and also make companies responsible cradle to cradle for all of the, you know, waste um, that comes out of the stuff Mm. that they manufacture as well as the inputs. Mm. So that would be one. Second one would be reduced working hours. Everybody has less stuff but more time. (laughs) Well, you'd also be paying more Uh, for stuff because the resource tax would come through into the cost of stuff that mm -hmm. you want to buy. Universal basic income and green jobs guarantee so that everybody has sufficiency, has sufficient. Yep. I would also like to see more support for community energy projects and a leg up for low-income communities and iwi harpu into um, developing those community energy. And when it comes to cars and cows, on the cars front, I reckon we should ban private cars in cities and towns. Jesus
1: Christ! Oh.
2: <laughs> move to a sub- Move to a subscription model, so you yep, yep. can still well, Bernard's drive.
1: Bernard's, Bernard's right up to that. He does. Yep. He does yeah, Mevo yeah. in the others. Mevo, yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's yep. good. So you yep.
2: subscribe to a car fleet service, which would probably be set up by some kind of private-public partnership, and that fleet would have to be progressively electrified over time. Mm. To support that, you also buy ten thousand new electric buses and minivans to improve public transport and make that mm. free. Yeah. And electrify rail between towns and cities. Christ, this is sounding like
1: a lot more than five. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I did
2: my five. Now I've got my cars and cows. Oh, I see. (laughs) And on cows, I actually, I'm going soft on this one. I think we actually need more support for farmers to transition out of high-intensity animal agriculture. Mm -hmm. So I think farmers are busily getting backed into a corner at the moment. And I think some of them even have locked-in syndrome, whereby they've got Mm. such high debt, more regulation, higher cost to internalize pollution streams. And I think their representative bodies are doing a really shit job for them And that who they are representing is just big ag and not mm. individual farmers. Mm. And I think individual farmers are actually being tossed into the moat so that every time the government comes for them, big ag can go, oh, but look at the poor farmers that are drowning mm. in the moat. Yeah. You
1: know? I was wondering, may I Ask you a couple of questions about that, Catherine. Or sure. A couple of assertions dressed up as questions. Um, <laughs> one is, it seems to me, and I, I don't think this is what I was entirely aware of this in the last few years. But you know the extent to which New Zealand dairy exports are not, in fact, value added. That really are they're they're the almost almost you know the milk without the water is what we're selling. Yep. Um, you know that seems a reversal, and I think that Fonterra needs a really good conversation about that, about whether value added is. Is coming from because if you you know send New Zealand uh, cream cheese, it's not going to be called Camembert, of course, but uh, you know that's surely got to be worth more to ship to other places. And I was talking to a friend last night who's slightly younger than me, and I remembered the trolley buses. And Mm. I'm young enough to remember both the what I think they were probably Bedford trolley buses that used to Mm. go up. Queen Street and around Karanga Happy Road and along Ponsonby Road. I can't believe you're that old, Peter. No, yeah, yeah. And they had the Volvos. Then they had these really stylish mm. Volvos, which Auckland mm. and Wellington only had them until quite recently. And you know, don't get me started on trams. I'm going to sound like Sir David Robinson, but you know, it really. This, some of these, you know, when, when I see one of those Chinese uh, buses zooming along, with particularly with the ridiculous "We Are Kinetic" branding <laughs> on them from uh, Auckland Auckland Transport, I just think, hang on a minute. Didn't we used to have you know mm. incredibly low cost uh, electric mm. buses going around, it, certainly around those internal routes? I don't mean that the new electric buses aren't a sensible idea, but we kind of we kind of had been down this route before,
0: as it were.
2: Don't we still have some in Wellington? I certainly did when I used to live there.
0: So when I lived in Brooklyn, we did have a tro- a, tra- oh, a trolley bus. Did we? That. that- that went up the hill and uh, actually it's only in the last four or five years it was taken down mm-hmm. uh, and the the logic being that it was cheaper to run the diesel buses and they tended to break down less. But of course, the short term problem is that you'll never um, get those trolley electric lines back up again. And they're one of the perfect solutions because one of the real issues with electric buses and electric trucks is that you're, you're continually having to stop to recharge them, mm-hmm. which is what you don't have to do with trolley buses.
1: Yes, exactly. Because the trolley buses, don't you remember, Bernard, the lovely chap with the bus driver would occasionally get his, they would sort of pop off and the bus driver would come back to the back of the bus and pull the ropes to allow oh, the, little, yeah. the little contacts to check again. Yeah, yeah, I see yeah. we've got Julie Timmons on saying, ban all private airplane and helicopter flights. I can tell you that's not going to be popular in with my neighbors who have a couple of helicopter pads. Jesus. But- Steady on.
0: There would be there would be an awful lot of people around your area who'd be quite happy because um, I'm not that far from uh, Hoon Bay, so to speak, mm. and I'm forever hearing helicopters going over in the middle of the night, and I'm sick so and tired. I know,
2: but
1: that's the police helicopter.
2: Is that my way? <laughs>
0: that's, the, that's, the, that's the
1: police helicopter. Three o'clock and nine o'clock, it's always there. Jesus, brother, I don't, I don't, I don't think even Ben Cook, Lance, who's one of my neighbours a bit further along the beach, Lance his helicopter. Rather stylish black aerospace helicopter. Uh, I don't think he or Airbus helicopter. I don't think even he lands it at the middle of the night.
0: No. So this is what we're doing. We're basically asking our subscribers and and ourselves. You know, what could we do if we were really serious about doing it? Now, the other thing that happened this week, just briefly in the climate uh, space, was the government did a couple of deals with councils to essentially. Uh, subsidise some uh, climate retreat. And it's all a bit ad hoc. Uh, Catherine, you've been looking at uh, what should have been our more considered, uh, organised, get-ahead-of-the-curve Climate Adaptation Act consultation. But uh, has been kicked off into the Netherlands, mm. the, ne- the ne- Never Neverlands. The Netherlands, the Netherlands of New Zealand politics.
1: I like that idea. The low countries. That's right. The low the, countries. The, of New <laughs> the low, soon-to-be-inundated policy countries. Yeah, yeah, good
0: idea. The, the Never Neverland of after the election. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what could we have done other than this ad hoc, you know, here's a billion dollars and let's hope that never happens again?
2: You're talking about the expert working groups yes.
0: report. Mm.
2: So they had, you know, quite a few very specific recommendations about how things should move ahead and who should get um, supported and at the start of it they kind of said well this isn't about protecting wealth this is about um, protecting well-being and and making sure that you know everybody's taken care of and we do the right thing going forward but there probably was quite a bit of protecting wealth in there in terms mm. of you know the government mm. up for the cost of the full cost of relocating people in those areas of retreat and the sense that I get from what has has been the discussion document that has come out from the government to go into select committee it's, is the sense of that maybe they can't afford it. So I'm not sure how fully costed out it is or where mm. the money was going to come from, but there's the sense in that document where they're kind of saying – you know, what should our priorities be amongst these things that the Mm. expert working group has recommended and, and, you know, and also kind of quite a strong focus on what is the resilience building that
0: we can do ahead of having to to Mm. do that managed retreat. Because in theory, if you spend a, a bit of money up front now to do the retreat before the next disaster, the cost of it will be much lower when the disaster happens. And if you assume that, we're going to have faster climate change than you know what most people have thought about until now. And in particular, that the IPCC, the, the whole UN climate establishment mm. idea that we're going to keep warming below 2% and we're going to have 3% economic growth. And we're going to do that by using some yet to be invented technology to suck carbon out of the air after 2030. If we think that's actually going to work, maybe we should have another a backup plan for it for when it doesn't, when we get to four degrees within fifty
1: years, but, um, Catherine, what, what did you make, Catherine, of the agreement with Auckland Council between Auckland Council and the government for something like two billion dollars to compensate people f- and, and do a certain amount of protection after the uh, Gabriel and other storms? You know, the replacement of the homes and so on, and also you got Tyrafty and Gisborne done. Yeah, it was very think- interesting to hear. Sorry to hear to hear um, Grant Robertson talking about the need that it just can't be ad hoc anymore. It's got to be, you know, much more of a sort of fundamental piece of planning.
2: Yeah, it absolutely can't be ad hoc because you, you look at that and you go, you know for sure that if that keeps getting worse and if councils are just going into higher and higher debt to pay their share of it, you know for sure that that's not sustainable. And and I think everybody needs some kind of a a clue as to, you know, what we need to prepare for and, and mm. what we can expect down the line if we can't expect to, to have that keep happening. Um, I think the other thing as well is, you know, if you, if you don't own your own home and you don't have much prospect of it, particularly if you're in the younger generations, the idea that you're going to spend your whole working life paying taxes in order to buy another house and another house and another house for people who built them in dumb places in the first place mm. is kind of, you know, that that's going to chase them all out of the country.
1: Yeah. The other news that I was very struck by this week that, you know, taken to its nth degree would be absolutely har- harrowing. Is this and, and because it's got adorable little penguins in it, we're kind of nervous about it, but the this mass mass deaths of penguins in Antarctica, because of the thinning out of the ice sheet there,
2: there's and, a and lot there of a, shocking things going on in Antarctica this year.
1: Yeah, and there was a st- statistic there that if that particular part of the ice sheet were not to reform, it would lead to something like a 15-foot increase in sea levels worldwide.
2: Yeah well I know we we talked about the AMOC a couple of weeks ago about what would happen if the mm. the ocean circulation system and mostly in the northern hemisphere but across yeah. hemispheres there was a, a piece of research out a couple of months ago Saying that actually, around Antarctica and the Southern Hemisphere, there is an even stronger possibility of the ocean circulation systems breaking down around mid-century. Yes. And they're um, much
1: less and they're much less measured, right? I mean, the Southern yeah, Oceans is a is a kind of um, data-free it, zone.
2: It is massively under researched, and I think all of the uh, Antarctic researchers at the moment are going, "Hey, everybody, we need urgently to get more funding and more research mm. going on down here because the impacts of some of these things." are massive and not just for those countries that are near to the uh, Antarctica, but you know, those those impacts stretch across hemispheres and, and oceans and things. So yeah, I think the the main thing that's jumping out to me at the moment is that we needed a whole lot more research going on down there to in order to mm. understand, you know, what's happening and whether we, we can do anything to stop it, you know?
1: Yeah. Robert, you handsome devil. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Good. Shall we talk about the, the cynicism that we've seen displayed mm. today from Putin?
0: Yeah, I, no, mean, I haven't the,
1: seen it at all. The, Go for it. The, the crocodile tears about, you know, he was a great man, but he, did, he made many mistakes. Talking about Prigozhin. But the one that really, really struck me, and I, you know, I say this as somebody who's kind of written about and watched Putin a lot, is this line about Dmitry Utkin, who was really the founder of Wagner and whose call sign. Was Wagner and who literally has or had SS insignia tattooed on his clavicle? Uh, Putin said that he was a you know great uh, pioneer against ne- the neo Nazis in Ukraine, and I just it is the most you know it, I, I think I've told you guys before, including including our lovely audience that I met the founder of Medusa, the great Russian. Exiled website, and she said, "If you can imagine Vladimir Putin, he is the most cynical person in the world." Mm -hmm. And just we see this, the the extraordinary thing today with Putin saying, you know, I've known Prigozhin since the '90s. He was a you know he was a great man, but also had many faults. And you know he's he's found his fate. And I think the word there is fate. You know, Putin has clearly you know the rug has been pulled out from him. But I just I could scarcely believe even from Putin the cynicism to talk about Dmitry Utkin having been fighting the neo-Nazis of Ukraine when I saw an absolutely stunning picture of him the other day with a SS insignia tattooed on his clavicle. Yeah. I took it to my tattoo artist the other day and he said, no, I wouldn't do that.
3: <laughs> yeah, it, it, Putin's uh, commiserations and condolences to the families of those killed, it sounded like a mob boss who was going to who <laughs> pay for the... the funeral arrangements for one of his victims or rival leaders that he'd bumped off. So it was very cynical. I agree.
1: What did he say? He he was a man with a difficult fate and he made some
3: serious mistakes in life. And one of his biggest mistakes, of course, was crossing paths (laughs) with Mr. Putin. And Mr. Putin gave a very revealing interview a few years ago with a journalist. And the journalist asked him, he said, do you ever forgive people? And he said, "Uh, oh, yes, I often forgive them. Uh, Even enemies. He said, What I don't forgive, and this is the exception to his rule, were people who were traitors. Mm -hmm. And of course, he had classified Prigozhin as a traitor. Absolutely. And uh, many people thought his card was marked. But uh, yeah, I mean, it it was very interesting. The chap at Bellingcat, um, Christo Grozev, said uh, very prophetically a week ago in the next six months, either Putin will be dead or Prigozhin will be dead. And uh, I thought of those words when we heard about... <laughs> yes, me too. And he's mm. and he's, and, and he's,
1: been, he's been talking a lot. I mean, if if, if our readers don't know, it, Belling- or watchers don't know, it, Bellingcat is a really effective OSINT yeah. site, the open source intelligence site. And this guy has done the most extraordinary work. And weirdly, Prigozhin sued Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat, for suggesting that he had anything to do with Wagner. <laughs> and, it, and it was a case heard. cost it cost Elliot you know thousands to appear. And it was again the most cynical use of yeah. the British legal system to mm-hmm. pursue this. so where do we where do we go from here, Robert? I was really struck. Gary Kasparov, uh, who you might remember, played a bit of played a bit of uh, yeah. chess now and then. And he said when a dictator is reduced to murdering members of inner circle and fighting with and replacing his own generals, the situation is very dangerous. There is no trust among those who remain and therefore no loyalty. The knives are out and must taste blood.
3: Yes, it is very interesting that a, a Wagner channel said immediately after Prigozhin's, well, it hadn't been, death hadn't been confirmed at that point, but they said, they didn't name Putin, but they said the leadership had made a catastrophic mistake in assassinating the chief of mm. Wagner and uh, that... It was an it, it was an action. The statement said which showed no awareness of the low state of morale in the mm. Russian army, mm-hmm. and the subsequent statements have been very bellicose. That they're they they're coming, <laughs> mm. they're coming, and uh, as yeah. we speak, apparently there are reports of Wagner units crossing from Belarus into Russia. So uh, we could be set for quite a turbulent period, I think. And um, of course, I I, I don't think. Uh, Uh, Wagner's reputed to be about 25 strong. They're probably leaderless because they lost their top leadership. Just 25,000 strong. Yeah, but they lost much of their leadership, didn't they, Mm -hmm. in the incident in which uh, Prigozhin was killed. But it does seem to me that he still, Prigozhin still had quite a lot of uh, allies in the Russian military. We can't forget that he got within 200 uh, 200 kilometers Mm. of Moscow unopposed. He went right through, rostov which was the headquarters for the ukraine operation well, he he
1: t- i was listening to this yesterday he said he took rostov in fact without <laughs> and of course if you remember he had surovikin who who surovikin mm. who yesterday just before the crash was relieved of his uh command for the russian aerospace i.e the air force he's gone too and surovikin of course was or surovikin i'm sorry if i my re- russian mm. pronunciation is bad was put up at rostov to kind of say would you surrender now mr uh, even though I knew everything you were doing i mean what's what what do you make of the of the sort of coincidence as it were of the Suravican going on the same day, it being exactly two months since the since the
3: uh, mutiny well, I think there's definitely a connection, Peter, because I think Mr. Putin, since he had to accept that humiliation for him of doing a deal with someone who he described as a traitor, his use of intervening two months to arrest. Um, a number of allies in the military and in the intelligence services of uh, pregotian and then I suppose uh, it was it was just waiting for the right moment really to try to move against um, pregotian it, it you know the funny thing is that um, although we expected some sort of action like this, I think it 's going to have a terrible effect. On their capacity to fight effectively yes, in Ukraine. Yes. I mean, this is, we spoke about this before, but Putin now seems to be caught in a downward spiral where he must effectively arrest all the people who are a political threat, many of whom are, were among the most effective in the Ukraine. And as a result, he must replace them with people who are either untried, uh, but very loyal, who may not perform well. And also, uh, I, if fighting does break out in Moscow, that will be the death knell for what's left of the russian military mm. campaign in uh ukraine so no wonder the ukrainians were jubilant yesterday and of course there was no love lost for prigozhin because uh prigozhin was he, he and his troops were responsible for some of the worst war crimes yes. committed in russia they were not alone of course but uh yeah i mean i i think the ukrainians must be jubilant and they they're also um have been making some significant gains they're moving towards uh, tomcat now mm. and uh yeah i mean they they're steadily nibbling away well, it was interesting robert the um the americans said today
1: that uh you know noting the the wagner problem and they said today this is you know this is the, the they've lost the most most effective military force facing the ukrainians but yeah uh, we we also saw robert this week and I, I i wrote a bit about it as you saw yeah about this you know fairly not not necessarily coordinated but fairly substantial comments from various us people that the ukrainian counteroffensive was going awry that, that it wasn't focused enough that it wasn't making the kind of penetration that it should and there was you know we couched it in all of those terms of the americans having a somewhat different um military yeah. strategy but what what do you think about i mean i, I hate to turn you into an armje- armchair general
3: no i think the ukrainians know what they're doing Budanov predicted a nasty surprise in Crimea. It duly arrived in the last 24 hours. I think they know exactly what they're doing. I think the early period was testing out the Russians, and they've been probing where they're strong and where they're weak. But they are making gradual and steady incremental progress. And I think events in Moscow could assist this. So Mm -hmm. in other words, I think uh, what we're seeing, one one thing, a, a point that's raised by... A very excellent observer, uh, Phillips O'Brien at St. Andrew's University, he made the point in the last 24 hours, and I think it's a really good point, that what's happened to Prigozhin should end the argument that we can't escalate uh, and support Ukraine so that it can defeat Russia uh, because we might end up with Putin uh, losing power and someone worse to replace him. Yeah, There's been this constraint. In Washington and in other capitals, Germany to some degree, although not so much recently. That I know Putin's, a, you know, an awful guy and very repressive, etc. But who, you know, we've got to be very careful because if we get him overthrown by defeating him roundly in Ukraine, we might get someone worse. Well, mm. I, I think that uh, Mr. Putin uh, has demonstrated just how ruthless he is. Uh, and I think a lot, there's been a lot of naivety about this. We've spoken about this before, but mm. a, less, a lot of Western commentators have been, I think, uh, a little bit, uh, how should I put it, generous in their appraisal of the way Putin does things. Putin will not compromise. And, uh, you know, he's now going to have to, he's got, well, he, I say he won't compromise. He's going to face a very tough few weeks, I believe. Mm. Well, it's mm. I was thinking today, of course,
1: of the apartment bombings in 1999 that effectively brought Putin to power, which were allegedly, according to the book um, "The Less You Know, You'll Better you... the Better You'll Sleep," yeah, uh, by David Satter, um, were all about uh, you know a KGB FSB conspiracy to blow up apartment buildings, which then led to the second Chechen war. You got the the theater ma- Moscow theater massacre in 2002, the Beslan massacre. Skripal Litvinenko you know it's it's a pretty extraordinary saga and i was reminded of general lebed who i yes. met uh in believe it or not in Taraspol in the 1870s when he was running the russian sixth army who died very suspiciously in a in a helicopter crash having become governor of siberia you know there's a there's a pattern here
3: yeah yeah i mean it, it, there is a pattern and uh you know, again, talk about Putin's cynicism. He said he's ordered a, a full and thorough uh, investigation <laughs> into what happened. This is an extraordinary situation where someone has ordered an investigation, which, of course, will exonerate the president of Russia from any involvement. Oh, no, we've, we've, we've already got, well, as they said in
1: Casablanca, round up the usual suspects. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I was also struck... Um, in these times, and we'll, we'll go to other subjects in a minute, but uh, I, I, I'm a huge fan of um, Russian history, and I'm a big fan of Simon Sebag Montefiore, the uh, British historian who's, who wrote The Court of the Young Tsar and various others. And he put out a quote today, which he said, in Stalin's time, they like to say, one man, one problem, no man. No problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Mr. Putin still got some problems, and uh, we'll see how it works out in the in the weeks to come.
1: Bernard, should we move to the bricks to the bricks question? Because I know Josie oh, I so, wanted yeah. to talk about that, and Robert, yeah. will you stay on to talk about oh, bricks? And we're saying B R I C K C C S rather. There's nothing. We're not being rude.
0: So, you know, as at the same time as there's plenty of drama in Russia, um, Russia is actually part of a big international uh, organization that seems to be growing in stature and uh, complexity, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the leaders uh, all met in person except for uh, Putin, who of course now has some uh, war crimes allegations against him, which means he probably shouldn't or can't travel easily, and uh, he was there by Zoom. And this meeting uh, really has ramped up the attention on BRICS with China uh, and Xi Jinping there to say, hey, we need to challenge the hegemony of the US dollar and the um, uh, uh, selfishness of the G7. And we need to have as many people as possible trading in renminbi, not trading in US dollars, doing deals with each other. Uh Josie, um, what do you think of BRICS, and, uh, which is going to expand now to include Saudi Arabia and Iran and Argentina? Uh, what, what did you think of the BRICS meeting this weekend?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's showing uh, just this sort of general rise of dissatisfaction and appetite for a less Western-dominated multilateral system and so on. So it's interesting that it's the first time, really, that that we've kind of taken notice of the BRICS meeting. I think it's the first um, in-person one they've had since COVID as well. Um, so, you know, the fact that it's that we're talking about it, the fact that it's got some mileage, the fact that they're talking about things like a common currency, as you said, you know, they want to be free not to trade in the US dollar. I mean, it's a nuts idea and it's never going to happen. I mean, you'd have to have a... a, a an agreed central bank between them. You'd have to have fiscal unity, potentially banking unity. I mean, it's just its never going to happen. And I think that's the interesting thing about it. It's it's the politics of it that's interesting. And you're right, the expansion to include countries like Iran, Saudi Mm. Arabia, I think uh, um, Egypt, Ethiopia. I mean, I think there's about 24 countries and a whole bunch of others that want to join. So it's kind of flexing muscles to to say, Um, You know the multilateral system has been found wanting in recent times,
1: which is which is true to some extent, Josie. Isn't it? I mean, it is. It is interesting that you can now, you know, that the. I mean, I think the Saudis and the and the Chinese have agreed to trade oil on on a Renminbi basis. I was reminded of the Non-Aligned Movement, which, you know, when I was little, which is you know not quite in the eighteen seventies, was quite a thing, and it was, you know, Cambodia was in it under Sihanouk. Uh, We had the. You know, Indonesia was very prominent. It was launched in Serbia, and it was all about a uh, a different way to see the world than Britain, Woods, and the UN to some extent. It was this non, It was particularly Cold War related, but there seemed to be some echoes of this. What do you, What do you think?
4: You know, it's interesting to see a rise of a kind of you know a, a muscular non-aligned mm. body, and we're seeing a little bit of these sort of regional organisations reforming, but. It's so uncoordinated and incoherent. You think you've got India and China who have no appetite to to work together at all. Uh, You've got, you know, Brazil, which is really, I think, paddling its own boat somewhere else. You've got Russia that can't even attend. It's not a values, moral based uh, attempt to redefine the multilateral system. So it really is just a kind of muscle flexing initiative, I think, that's not going to go anywhere and is no particular despite being a third of the GDP of the world at the moment, Mm. it's not going to be, um, you know, it's not like we're suddenly moving away from a US-led multilateral Bretton Woods system. But you're absolutely right. That there, is, there is a point that we that we feel too in New Zealand that the multilateral system has failed in Ukraine. It's failed to mm. uh, prevent Russia becoming the chair of the Security Council mm. while it's waging an illegal war. You know, there's a lot of problems with the multilateral system. We need to actually fill that gap to define mm. what it might look like post Ukraine and post um, COVID.
1: Well, Robert, you, you're the come in on this, please. I'm not to interrupt you, so Josie, but would you come on this because you also had that view? And I don't mean to bring Jacinda Ardern into this too much, but you had this view that New Zealand had a particular potential yeah. to unite some of the smaller countries. But you know, maybe maybe you since you're the professor, could you just take us through very briefly what we mean when we talk about Bretton Woods and the post
3: and and this this uh, multilateral system? The the Bretton Woods system was overseen by the United States towards the end of the Second World War, and it was trying to learn the lessons from the 1930s. It wanted a financial system which basically held up the principles of free trade. Uh, The dollar was basically uh, seen as the main reserve currency. I mean, you know, we often forget how dominant the United States was after Mm. the Second World War. Mm. 50% of the world's wealth was residing in a country with just under 4% of the world's population. So they were in a position to try to lay out financial arrangements. I think it was a sincere attempt. And this was a country which was a young foreign policy actor, which had been semi-detached about foreign policy before, had for the first time in its history, committed itself to sustained engagement in foreign policy, which Mm. was new for the United States. Mm. But fast forward, I I just want to say how much I agreed with what Josie said. Um, The thing that really disturbed me about the BRICS meeting was the fact you had people like the South African president lamenting the injustice of the current system, and they've got a point. But first of all, South Africa, you know, this this business about fairness and justice starts at home. And um, let's be quite frank about this. Many of these countries which are saying how unjust the international economic system is, some of them uh, are treating their own citizens appallingly. Mm. with the highest levels of corruption imaginable. The other thing is I haven't heard any demand to remove the, uh, the veto in the Security Council. And that is a crucial step to t- creating a genuine multilateral international rules-based system. Because at the moment, it's a contradiction in terms. When five countries can veto anything they don't like, and yet they're saying they support the international rules-based system.
0: But the key thing there is that uh, China doesn't want to give up its veto. And China really Mm. is the leader of the BRICS. One thing I think that's interesting here is that America uh, has really ramped up the temperature on this whole, you know, uh, U.S. dollar is the dominant reserve currency thing by essentially using the power of the U.S. dollar as the main currency for global trade. And its ability to lock down the settlement system. So the SWIFT settlement system yeah. was used in two thousand and twelve to lock mm. Iran out. Um, the, uh, the use of the US dollar and the uh, payment systems was used by America to try to punish Russia, which was sort of effective in stopping Russia from using US dollar. Now we have Russia using the B. So I think. If those people in the, the sort of West who are saying, ah, oh, uh, this BRICS thing is just um, a talk shop and it's not going to go anywhere, one of the reasons it might go somewhere, a little way, is that America used its power as mm. the reserve currency to as a weapon. And yeah. and a lot of people are a little bit nervous about that now. Hey, I thought this was just a great thing for trading with people and investing.
1: Well, and also has used it against individuals as well. Any mm. moment that a dollar touches you know the U.S. banking system; it's being used for sanctions. It's being used for personal sanctions. You know Oleg Deripaska. You know not that you know not that he's exactly a victim, but sorry, Josie, you were about to burst yeah. I was in just there. thinking
4: of something you said, Robert, that um, a statistic I saw the other day. Like, if you go back to the end of the Second World War, and yeah, you know, U- U.S. was the biggest economy. Um, you know, it was it was the superpower that that dominated, um, and you know, statistically, the percentage of trade of gdp it was it was i think it was only about 7% of their gdp was actually trading with other countries yep. which is really interesting when you fast forward to today where you've suddenly got the rise of protectionism reintroduction of tariffs the idea of um you know onshoring manufacturing friendshoring at the most um that you know it is a it's a realistic I suppose goal or ambition for the US to return to a kind of self sufficient economy, which is of course it isn't for small countries mm. like New Zealand. So, uh, mm. you know, and when you look at that statistic, you think, wow, it was a superpower without really needing to trade with the rest of the world way back then, um, and that's that's fascinating to me. But the other thing I was going to say is the other thing you've had this week, so you've had the BRICS. But you've also had, I think it was this week or you know recently, the summit in Camp David where you know you had Korea and Japan come together, which was extraordinary. Um, you've got US deals, security deals, and PNG coming forward uh, in the Philippines. So you've got this kind of lattice work of security arrangements and trade arrangements um, in Asia. So so the the US block, if you look at, if you compare it to the BRICS led by China at the moment you know, their attempt to kind of put it, have an alternative to that, you'd have to say that this week, the US won, you know, I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that lattice work of, of relationships and security deals and so on is far more robust than anything that came out of the BRICS this week.
1: Yeah. Do, do you think, uh, Robert, it was quite striking that um, Xi Jinping did not deliver his own speech
3: there was a lot of speculation why he didn't do it, but I I don't think I could add anything to that really because I it it it, it was striking. Um, I I'm just struck by the fact that I I fully agree what Josie said. The Americans have had a they continue to have these sort of in trilateral arrangements, and they it was quite a triumph I think to host both Japan and South Korea at the Camp David. Um, but I am concerned because. I think the United States, I know that elements of the Republican Party. I mean, Mr. Trump has promised, hasn't he, that it was going to be a garrison state if he wins. He said he's going to put 10%, is it 10% Bernard on mm. surcharge or something like that on, on imports coming into the country. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, the grain of history, it seems to me the world's becoming smaller rather than, than bigger. And it, it seems to me, that yeah, I, I do come back to my point. I think New Zealand needs to recognise that there are problems that the BRICS countries are alluding to. America now is not the same giant and America should be magnanimous enough to actually try to facilitate what it wants, it says it wants, which is an international rules-based system, which is based on principles rather than power. And America could go a long way to showing some leadership in this way. Mm, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm disappointed that if america doesn't provide it uh, something's got to give because we're confronted with a whole series of problems which don't recognize borders and if america reasserts itself in the world it's not going to solve those problems
4: the two things i would say about that is one is they could i think this does show that they can come together and cooperate over something like who pays for climate change policy and yep. transition and i think that's where we'll see the BRICS step up there'll be a big pushback on on how much this is costing and who's paying. Um, and But, yeah, I, I totally agree, Robert. It, it's like we've got to fill that space of reforming the yes. Western multilateral system. If we don't come up with the ideas of fixing the veto through other ways, then um, it's all over, over.
0: Mm. One of the fascinating things I saw this week was the beginning of the Republican Party's debates. Without Donald Trump, although he obviously did his um, – uh, his show with um, the the now-deposed Tucker Carlson on Twitter, uh, and he's just been arrested and his mugshots in front of the world to cheers. But I, I'm what sort of shocked me. I'm, I'm perhaps I'm too easily shocked. Uh, Josie, you watched the debates with these uh, Republican candidates, um, in which you know this idea that America, the leader of the free world, who as you rightly says, uh, uh, Robert, with Bretton Woods and the post-war settlement, uh, engaged with the world, made itself richer, made everyone else richer, and um, set itself up to be a much, much bigger. But now seems to be pulling back from that engagement with the world, making John Maynard Keynes roll in his grave. You know, uh, Josie, what did you think of the candidates for the Republican Party? You know, we all think anything's better than Trump, but I wonder.
4: Yeah, well, so the thing that Trump's proven with politics is that, you know, if you take a kind of pro-professional wrestling approach to politics, it's really, really (laughs) successful. And we sneer at that, but actually we could learn from that. You know, I mean, it's that sense of entertainment, politics is entertainment. So what you saw was, you know, this was kind of, um, I don't know, the the Trumpism without Trump. So you had uh, Ramaswamy as the sort of um, candidate from out out way back suddenly coming forward as the Trump candidate, 38-year-old guy, billionaire, you know, tech tech guy. Um and he really did channel that kind of pro-wrestling dopamine hit <laughs> that Trump supporters want. You know, he just hit all the marks. It was we don't want reform. We don't want these guys. We want revolution. We don't want to support, you know, Ukraine and their Pope Zelensky. They treat Zelensky like he's a Pope. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna do America, not Ukraine, Um, climate change is a hoax. Um, Yeah, so he did all the kind of emotive stuff, um, which, you know, you kind of went, oh, my God, this is a glimpse of the sort of post-Trump Republican Party. I think the hope there, so he's definitely the Trump candidate. The problem they all had was that they're trying to beat Trump while not beating up on him. And that—that's a sort of oxymoronic way of approaching mm. a campaign. It's like you, you're beating the guy, but you're all putting your hands up, saying if he gets convicted of all these charges, you're still going to back him as the candidate if he gets elected as the in the primaries as the candidate. So you know they're they're really stuck there. The, the candidate that I think stood out as the sort of hope for the Republican Party and all of us, if, if there's a chance that the Republicans might win. Is Nikki Haley, who just behaved like the adult in the room um, and just chastised people like Ramaswamy for saying, You clearly know nothing about foreign policy and you're ill equipped to do this. And 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 she also criticized Trump and said, you know, he left a eight billion dollar debt or more actually um you know he can't he 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 blew up the republicans reputation for fiscal mm. management and we have to push back on that so i think she she was the one that really sort of stood out to me and she said you know look to, she behaved as if to run against trump you've actually got to run against trump <laughs> so mm. she did so yeah but it was it was disturbing because they're really their semantics of trying to beat trump while not beating up on him was just painful
0: mm. to is this the inevitable result though, of polarization of of politics?
1: Um, this is. A, there's a segue coming here. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: You've written a column today it's
1: from a bloody mile away. Yep.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, a statistic. I wrote I about this in the column today. That's right. And and the problem with this sort of tribal politics, and of course, we're used to seeing it. You know, it's played out in, in the US, and Trump is the sort of. I think I called him the polarizer in chief. You know, I mean, he, he's he's the one who. Has really modelled this idea that the opposition isn't just wrong; they're bad, they're evil. Mm, And if you think of opposition, then logically you 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 do have to destroy them, not just beat them. You actually have to destroy them. And so that's if you look at New Zealand, you know that sense of um, you know uh, these are bad people. Um, And if if I think of it, you know I'm on the sort of centre left of politics, you know it's Oh, David Seymour's was a racist, and, and and these are terrible people, and the Tories are terrible, it, and it happens both sides, right, both ways. That you end up in a situation where if there is a good policy, if the other side support it, there's no way you're going to even look at it, and mm-hmm. and I quoted, and and I'll stop here, but I quoted a wonderful Stanford. Don't University stop, keep
1: going. Well, I love
4: this um, experiment, this this study they did at Stanford University relatively recently um, where they had a a policy on – it was job training for people on benefits, on on unemployment benefits, and and do we think this is a good policy – With one group of Democratic supporters, they didn't put any party branding on it. It was just, this is the policy. They overwhelmingly supported it. I thought it was a great policy. It helps to get working people who should be working, who want to work back into work It supports the unemployed. In the other group, they put a, a tag on it that the Democratic Party had rejected this policy. And then overwhelmingly, the majority of that group, also Democratic supporters, said it was a terrible policy because it would thrust force-working people into menial jobs, unemployed people into menial jobs. So it just demonstrates that when you put the, the sort of tribal brands on it, it's really hard to debate what works and what doesn't. what's Yeah,
1: good. but but Josie, they're really playing the tribal card though, aren't they? Whether it's this thing about gangs at the moment, whether it's these phrases we talked about last week about take back New Zealand, and we know who they want to take it back from. It's very... Regressive. I, I find I, it makes me feel quite uncomfortable as a New Zealander. Sorry, Robert. You're wanting. You're wanting. You, you, you. No, the professor of international affairs wants to make an <laughs> no, assertion I just about- <laughs> wanted to say
3: this. this you know, these people who declare themselves as anti woke and taking back the country, he's talking in riddles. Mm. I mean, you know, they they must have the guts and the courage when they say they're anti woke. What they're actually saying is that they, that basically, they want to uphold the status quo and they regard anyone that what's to even moderate the status quo or change it is woke. Uh, They're virtual
1: signifiers. I've decided that this whole woke thing is essentially, I demand my right to be a complete prick yeah. Well, but
4: to come back to you, Peter, I, I, I think that, um, that, and it was, uh, what's his name? Daniel Finkelstein, uh, Lord Finkelstein, yeah. who writes for the Times. Danny.
1: Lord Danny, yep.
4: Da- Lord Danny. But he, he he said a wonderful thing, which I thought was absolutely true, no matter what side of politics you're on, is that there's no point in telling people you're wrong, you're bad, you're racist, you're, you're whatever. You've got to go, what is the story that they're telling themselves about what's right and where what is the story that you want them to tell them? And you've got to sort of go, yep, yeah, I understand why you're saying that. I get it. You're right. And here's why this policy is a good idea to address your concerns about yeah. local democracy. Yeah. You know, because- I'm going to
1: finish, Josie, because I, I, we we have to finish because Bernard's Bernard's being called out as well. But um, two things. One is the the uh, uh, Provost of Ox of uh, Eton said the other day, if woke means. Being reasonable about other people and not and not you know putting other people down, then yep, I'm woke. Now, shall we close with? I don't really have a skateboarding dog, but I do have a very silly joke that I saw today. Okay how do all How do all Wagner operas end? <laughs> Everybody's dead. <laughs>
4: <laughs> i have oh, just no. one more. Uh, um, there's a great Soviet phrase which says. Um, uh, that the the future is known, but the past is unknown.
0: Very good. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Uh, Josie, Robert, Peter, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Have a nice weekend. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye, guys.